So if you turn there now, Mark 15, we'll look at verses 16 and 20. I'll read them and then, and then we'll pray together. And this is what the word of the Lord says. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion and they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, hail, king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the testimony of your son. Lord God, everything he did and everything he said, everything he thought, every motion of his hands, every thought that came into his mind, every action was meant to glorify you, to serve you to fulfill his calling in this world. And we pray, God, now that as we look at his story again, that we, as we look at the details of it, and we, we look at what you accomplished on this day in the Praetorium, I pray, God, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord God, that you would teach us how wondrous your word is and how great the fulfilling of it was in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you and we praise you in your name and amen. Now, are there times when you read the Gospels and wonder why some of the small details were included? Why a purple cloak? Why purple? Why not red? Why not blue? Why a crown of thorns? Why, if they're going to make a crown, are they going to make it out of thorns? Were the thorns merely included to demonstrate the sadism of the Roman soldiers? Is it just a detail that lets us know exactly how nasty and evil and wicked they are? Do these details have some significance besides confirming the authenticity of an eyewitness account? It's, right? Does Mark simply include these details so that we know this really is something that was seen by people? Right? It, it gives it a little, little depth. Sensory details, I know, always make a story more believable and personable. But is that why they're there? Just a literary flourish. If you're uh, reading a really good book, and they describe a location, and, and they describe what it smells like. Have you ever had a, a novel where you could really smell it, right? And it just makes the whole story seem more real. Is that why details like this are included? As we near the end of Jesus's life, however, we have to return to the beginning of redemptive history to discover the deeper meaning of these details, because these details are not simply literary flourish. They're not an aside. They're not there simply to add depth to the story. Everything that Jesus did, everything that happened to him has a great deal of meaning. And so to understand this scene in the Praetorium, what we're going to do is go back to the very beginning of, the, of redemptive history. We're going to return to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to look at verse, verses 16 through 19. Right? This, is, this is right after the fall. This is after Adam and, and Eve have eaten the apple. This is God discovering their sin. And this is what he tells them is going to be uh, the consequence. To the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he, he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the, uh, the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of, out of it you were taken, for you are dust, 
and to dust you shall return. Now, God had previously commanded Adam to fill and subdue the earth. Upon the disobedience of Adam, he issues a sentence of judgment that makes, fulfilling, uh, that makes fruitfulness and dominion far more difficult. Adam's helpmate now suffers more in childbirth, and the ground yields more than fruit. It also yields thorns. Adam, who failed to obey God, is now estranged from the two necessary ingredients to fruitfulness. How can you be fruitful if you're estranged from your wife? How can you be fruitful if the ground ceases to produce only fruit, but now produces thorns? Thorns exist where once the ground produced fruit willingly. Thorns now attack men, our work and our fruitfulness and our relationships. The estrangement of Adam and Eve is described in Genesis 3.16. Eve is told that her desire will be for her husband. Now, what does this mean? Well, the term rendered desire occurs only three times in the Old Testament. The other two instances are Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, and once in the Song of Solomon, which we'll say for another time. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, God tells Cain that sin's desire is contrary to him and seeks to rule over him. Sin wants to determine his actions and not obey him. The use of the word desire in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, helped us understand what was happening back in Genesis 3.16. Eve's desire for her husband is a desire to determine his actions. She now wants to rule over him instead of being ruled by him. To rule over him, which is contrary to the hierarchical structure of male headship, Adam is in charge. Now Eve wants to subvert that. She wants to rebel against that, just like Adam wanted to rebel against the headship of God. Eve's influence is now clothed in sinful tyranny. And by rejecting that, Adam often sinfully rejects Eve's help generally. See, this is very interesting. Man listened to his wife when he ought not to, and now he has a difficult time listening to her when he ought to. He no longer wants to listen to her because so much of what she's trying to do with him is wrapped up in her, the sinful tyranny of the woman over the man. For women, men are generally a project to be shaped and molded. Many women see a young man and they think, yes, I can get a lot out of this. We're like dolls to dress up and teach good manners to. While men, generally speaking, just don't listen. What's that? No idea. No idea. She was talking for 10 minutes. At what point? Uh, I, I don't know when I stopped listening, but I definitely shouldn't mention the fact at this point because it's gone on for 10 minutes. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation. That happens to me probably more often. Uh, than, I, than it should. Sorry, baby. The relational harmony seen back in the unashamed nakedness of Genesis 2.15 is something that most married people know nothing about. It's long gone. No longer does the woman gladly embrace her created role of helper, and man no longer wants her help. Neither man nor woman were cursed. God did not curse man or woman. If God had cursed man or woman, there would be no saving them. Instead, pain and complication were added to the task that God made them to accomplish. He didn't say, okay, well, now because of sin, forget about fruitfulness, forget about dominion. No, he's left that mandate. We are to be fruitful and we are to take dominion. But what he says, now because you didn't listen to me, now because you were disobedient, it's going to get much, much, much harder. Right? And we have kids. This, when you have kids and, and you give them rules and they don't follow the rules and they consistently don't follow the rules, what you do is you make the rules tougher. You make the rules harder. You, you make the task more difficult, not less difficult. Because what you want is your kids to rise to the occasion. And this is what God is essentially doing. God didn't create work at the fall. It existed before the fall. Because fruitfulness and dominion were what God made Adam and Eve for. That is why they're there. He never changed. 
He never changes that. Not even the fall changes that. God cursed the ground and introduced thorns into both man's work and man's relationships. Rather than working a blessed creation, because of the fall, man will toil over a cursed ground while strife invades his relationships. God's word of judgment against sin makes the work painful, the environment unwieldy, and the relationships between men and, men and women strained. Men's, man's curse is a curse of futility and estrangement. Thorns. These are the thorns that choke the life out of our calling of fruitfulness and dominion, the very purpose for which we were all created. Now, let, let's actually take a moment and look at each of these thorns that I've described uh, in more detail. The first thorn is futility. Romans chapter 8, verse 20 says, For the creation was subjected to futility. Now, the Oxford English Dictionary defines futility as pointlessness or uselessness. When Adam sinned, the created world was subjected to futility, this appearance of pointlessness and uselessness. Now, I want to um, be clear that what God didn't do is, is make things pointless and useless. What he did by adding the, the, these thorns, this futility, is the sense of fruitlessness, the sense of useless, pointless um, outcomes to our work. To be fruitful, to multiply and to subdue the earth, appears to be a futile task. It appears hopelessly impossible, as our work seems ineffective on the larger world, because it is so hard to permanently alter our environment, and we all experience this. Man can alter the landscape through things like dams and irrigation, but what happens as soon as it's left un untended for any length of time? What happens to any dam after 100 years? What happens to any city, actually? In any city right now, if man abandoned it, what would happen to it within two generations? It would cease to exist. It would crumble. It would become as nothing was ever there. This is why you can go to the oldest parts of the world, and the further down you dig, the more civilizations you find. But this, this is a kitchen table problem here. What can one mom, one engineer, one preacher, one painter, one technician do for the larger world? Alone, our work seems as pointless as charging into hell with a squirt gun. One thinks of more than just the thorns and thistles, however, that were accompanying the work in Genesis chapter 3. Our, the pain in childbirth for the woman, the pain for the man, right? There's more to it than this. And, and the Bible has a great deal to say about it. One thinks of the repeated refrain in Ecclesiastes, all is vanity. The Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, uses the same Greek word for vanity that is translated as futility in Romans 8.20. Sin makes childbirth feel futile. Instructing children seems futile. I have six. I can tell you all about it. Weeding the garden and laundry seem futile. There seems to be no permanence to our work, no lasting effect on the world around us. Nothing seems to be permanent except change and decay. The fulfillment of our calling seems so incremental, so hard to see positive outcomes. It seems like an utterly useless struggle. Now, every three years, my back porch needs a new coat of paint. I don't do it. Uh, my landlord does it. But without, without fail, every three years, they have to go out there and repaint it. All the joyous living, the barbecues, the kids' vigorous games, the kiddie pool, the dragging the furniture across the surface, they never seem to know that they're supposed to lift it and carry it. It all takes a toll. Now, my question is, does anyone have a stain or a paint that is permanent, that I can just paint this thing one time and that would be it? For that matter, does anyone have some wood incapable of rotting or decay? How about a permanent roof? 
Don't get me started about dishes or car tires. The fact that, right, car tires seem like so ridiculously expensive, and then before you know it, they're bald. Apparently, you're supposed to rotate them as well. That makes them last a little longer. But how much of our time is spent, right, sitting in discount tire, waiting for the guy to get to us because our tires, our tires, our tires. It seems we work and work just to make sure that the socks get back in the hamper, smelly, used, and in need of a flamethrower. We tell our kids again. We spank the kids again. We remind hubby again. We send the email for a response again. Is there no end? Is there any lasting fruit or meaning to all of this work? Now, Tim Keller said in his book, Every Good Endeavor, work under the sun is meaningless because it does not last, and so it takes away our hope in the future. It also alienates us from God and from one another, so it takes away our joy in the present. Nothing seems permanent. Nothing stays in its place. The blackberry bushes, no matter what I do, grow back. The concrete cracks from the tree roots. Concrete. I mean, what is more permanent seeming than concrete? But you give the bush a little, a little while, and suddenly it's a tree, and there goes the concrete. Here's another one, pajamas, right? Can I just, can I buy a pair of pajamas that grows with my kids? How much money we spend on pajamas, it's insane. We need help. Not just an assurance that there is an end to all of this labor, but that it is actually meaningful and good, right? I mean, it's not just that I need someone to tell me that the work uh, is going to get us somewhere. I need someone to tell me that it matters now. That incremental, right, the incrementalism is actually okay, that's how it's supposed to be. We need help. We need assurance. We need hope. Futility is a defeatist way of perceiving our circumstances that we all suffer from. But another thorn is the fact that we work in a fallen workplace. Now, after the fall, God didn't just introduce turmoil into the marriage relationship. He said to the serpent, Genesis, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This, this same, uh, there's turmoil in the marriage relationship and there's turmoil now between man and man. Because, right, he's talking to the, the serpent and the serpent doesn't have children. Both the, the children of the serpent and, and the, the believing children are going to come through Eve. It's, they're going to be brothers. Man and man, brother and brother, are now going to be at war with one another. Now, we see this, right? Right after God says this in chapter 4 of Genesis, what do we see? We see the, the first boy that's born kills his brother Abel. So we see the struggle. We see this enmity. We see this antithesis right in the very beginning of the story. God put enmity between the children of Satan and the children of faith. So when considering the environment in which a Christian laborer works, it's more than the physical world that is opposed to us. How many of you work in a, in a Christian company, surrounded by Christian examples, in, in the context of a Christian worldview? Almost none of us. The Christian worker is constantly confronted by bad examples, within hearing of profanity, coarse joking, and blasphemy. The Christian worker is subjected to gossip and slander, complaining and backbiting, malicious speech and lies, and this is just the homeschooling moms. Christian workers are subjected to office smut in which sin is glamorized, marriage vows are broken, and flirting is frivolous and wanton. The Christian worker is exposed to immodest dress and seductive speech. He faces orders and expectations that require him to lie, to cheat, to steal, to deceive, withhold information, and present half-truths as full-truths. 
the Christian is surrounded by thorns at work because he does his work in the midst of Satan's children who are not exactly fans of morality. Satan attacks the Christian with temptations particular to his calling. This is a very general list that I have here because everyone's temptation is very specific to the work that they have. Whether that worker is a homemaker or he goes into the office to sit in the cube next to the guy who's very quickly sleeping his way through the HR department. Some workers are required to travel away from home and family and spend many, many, many nights away in hotels. We are confronted by father hunger, provocatively dressed women, overtly insecure men, hatred of the fruit of the womb, people opposed to the selflessness of marriage and child rearing. Christian workers are constantly exposed to the sins of others. The Christian worker must be mindful of the attacks of the enemy and how they come, how they are specific to the work that we do. Another thorn is that our motivations are often selfish, as selfish as described in Ecclesiastes 4.4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. And isn't that true? How often are, are your coworkers who you thought were your friends, that you thought were, you know, simpatico with you, are really stabbing you in the back or making you look bad or stealing your ideas, stealing your work to make themselves look good? So much of our work comes out of mere envy. And we read in James that envy is the source of the strife between man and man. That's, he's very clear. Because we are envious of one another, we bite and devour and murder one another. That's what we covered last week. Now, I used to work at a courthouse before I became a pastor. And one of the unbelievable things that I had to do was process name changes for the gender illiterate. Right? Jim wants to become Jill. And all in the name of equity and social justice. I remember having no patience, though, for impatient people. I remember. I, could, I couldn't tolerate intolerance. I looked down on pride. I cursed foul language. But you know what I was very distracted by is processing name changes for the gender illiterate. I was convinced, I became convinced over time that my real job was logging because I kept a ready supply of boards in my eyes. I could hardly see my coworkers' personal struggles or God's image in them. There is this tension at our workplaces. We get so frustrated and so angry at the wickedness and sin all around us that it, it, it frustrates us to the point where it chokes out the gospel that's inside of us, the hope that's inside of us, the reason that we look beyond ourselves and obey Jesus Christ. I could have built a mansion in heaven for myself out of the logs I kept in my eyes, like the cedars of Lebanon. This is the tension that we face, right? What, right? We're so frustrated by the wickedness there, we don't even see the wickedness in ourselves. Now for others, some of us are people pleasers. Some of us are insecure. It's all too easy to downplay Jesus and our faith it's all too easy to blend in. It's all too easy to complain about the old ball and chain. It's a real temptation to make our work about us, about getting through, not stirring the pot, not standing out, not ruffling any feathers. Just earn your bread and go home. What we need is courage. We need a benevolent king, limitless in his resources and provision. And remember what C.S. Lewis said, courage is not simply one of the virtues but the form of every virtue at the testing point. We need to be valiant workers in the world, and we all too often are not. It's a real struggle to be valiant, to build relationships with people who are opposed to our God and all he stands for, to love the unlovely, to be a bastion of virtue amidst a culture of irreverent, hypersexualized juvenilia. 
who can show us? Who can show us how to stand around the water cooler with the unbelieving coworker and show compassion without compromise? Is there any examples that we can think of? Maybe Jesus at the well, right? He was just going about his work as the Messiah at the watering hole, asking a woman about her, the state of her soul. The whole world was subjected to thorns, and it waits for the revelation of the sons of God. What's taking us so long? Well, thorns are. Because even though we believe, even though we are in the kingdom, even though we're baptized, even though we know whose children we are, the thorns are still there, choking out the hope within us, choking out our calling and our purpose. The world is waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. It's, it, it, it's moaning. It's groaning. It's suffering. While we wait, right? We wait to make sure that we're not going to cause too much of a stir or alienate ourselves or lose our job by the things that we say. We wait for the same revelation. How are we supposed to work in the midst of so many thorns? How are we supposed to do it? Who is going to give us rest and peace? Who will deliver us from this body of death? This was Paul's question. Well, the answer is that Jesus is the greater Noah. The greater Noah. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God promised that a son would come to deliver man from Satan, sin, and death, reversing the fall of man by restoring him, his relationships, and his work. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, Eve exhibited hope with the first man that was born to her. She said, oh, the Lord has given me a son. And she thought that it was going to be the deliverer that had just been promised to her back in Genesis chapter 3. But as we know, as I've already covered, Cain was not the redeemer. He was anything but the redeemer. Cain's father was the lying murderer, Satan. Abel was the righteous son, and he was murdered by his brother. Now, all the sons of promise from this point forward point forward to Jesus Christ. This is what we have to understand. We go, this is why we go back to the very beginning of history. Right at the start, God promises Eve and Adam that, that a son will come. They immediately think the son is coming. It's not the son. Cain isn't the one they're waiting for. Neither is Abel, for that matter, because now he's lying under the dirt. There is this tension that's introduced into the story. Who is going to deliver us? Who is going to save us from these thorns? And what we, what, right, all these sons that they expected to be the one we call sons of promise. Because they somehow, right, in their generation, people thought they were the one. But what we see now is that they were carrying the promises forward and working their way towards a fulfillment of the promise. They serve as types and shadows of the true Messiah to come, building on the promises and expectations of how glorious he would be. And all those sons were, in the oddest way possible, living history. The Messiah's prophetic biography. <laughs> when you, what, what we have to understand about the history of Israel is that point by point, plot point by plot point, types and shadows, what it is, is a prophetic biography of the Lord Jesus Christ. These Old Testament characters and the prophecies about them begin to construct a theology of the Messiah. They begin to paint a portrait of a particular person. They begin to build the expectation of God's people. And when we read the story, if you understand this, you see it all over the place. And your own expectations begin to build. Now, the next major prophecy about the promised Redeemer comes uh, after Genesis 3.15, comes from Lamech, Noah's father. The term translated pain 
in both Genesis 3.16 and 3.17 occurs only one other time in the Old Testament. And that's in Genesis chapter 5, verse 29. Now, Adam will eat with pain. Eve will bear children in pain. All men and women will experience this pain in their work. And at Noah's birth, his father Lamech hopes that Noah is the one who will bring relief from painful toil. Genesis chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech declares that a man would come from the dirt, truly human, because Adam was made from the dirt. And this man will deliver mankind from the curse of thorns and pain, restoring fruitfulness to us all. Now, there are a number of ways in which Lamech's son Noah would be a type of Jesus. There's, a, there's the big one that we all think of. Noah carried a new humanity safe, safely through the waters of cleansing to a new life. So, too, Jesus carries a new humanity through the waters of cleansing to new life in baptism. And that connection is, is very easy to make. But, but, but Noah is a much greater symbol of who Jesus is. And, and I love that he is because it's so early in, the, in redemptive history that the story occurs. It heightens the expectations a great deal if you know what to look for. It's, it's fascinating to me that the very first promise of a Messiah that came after the first generation of humans is a promise about deliverance from the thorns that make our work so painful. Our daily struggle against thorns, Lamech's painful toil of our hands, reminds us of original sin and in fact summarizes our state after the fall. It's not just, it's not just a poetic statement that he's making. Now, Calvin explains the connection in his commentary, and this is extremely helpful. In the expression, the toil of our hands, one kind of toil comprises the whole miserable state into which mankind had fallen. For they undoubtedly remembered what Moses has, has related above concerning the laborious, sad, and anxious life to which Adam had been doomed. And since the wickedness of man was daily increasing in that generation, no mitigation of the penalty could be hoped for unless the Lord should bring unexpected relief. It is probable that they were very earnestly looking for the mercy of God, for their faith was strong and necessity urged them ardently to desire it. Now remember, in this generation, the generation before Noah, the wickedness on the earth was getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And the way that they summarized the fall their theology of it then was the, the toil of their hands. That toil of the hands, those thorns, summarized for them the curse that man had fallen on, into. Lamech's comment on the name Noah, which strictly speaking means rest, Noah is the rest from the curse. That's what Lamech is hoping. Now, there is a very um, connected idea in Hebrew, and that is of Rest and comfort. Rest and comfort go together. Generally, they're spoken of together. The concepts live together. Noah is going to come and he's going to give us rest. And because he gives us rest, he's going to comfort us in the toil of our hands, the curse that we have fallen under. Lamech expects that Noah will bring both rest and comfort from the painful toil of work that is a daily reminder of the curse, the fall of man and the state of rebellion and judgment under which we have all fallen. And this is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3-5. through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, 
who comforts us in our affliction. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. As we take up our cross, enduring the enmity of Satan and Satan's children, as we clothe ourselves in Jesus Christ, sharing in his death and resurrection, Jesus comforts us. Receiving comfort does not mean we suddenly find ourselves, however, without troubled circumstances. Otherwise, we, right, Jesus didn't get the comfort and the mercy and the love and the glory uh, without difficult circumstances. What, what God does not do is save us from the difficult circumstances. He saves us in the difficult circumstances. And there is, right, an entire world of difference between the two. In the midst of our troubled circumstances, we find the profound well-being that comes from resting in God's sovereignty and mercy, a concept expressed by the Hebrew word shalom, or peace. These are the comforting words of Jesus Christ in chapter in John chapter 14, verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Wait, why would, where are you going, Jesus? Why would we be afraid now that you've come, now that you've restored all things in yourself? Why would we have anything to fear? Jesus knows what he came to accomplish, and he knows that he's going to ascend to the Father, and he knows there's going to be a period of time in which the Spirit dwells upon us, and, and things are left, in a sense, unfinished. But he's saying, don't worry, don't be afraid, I'm leaving my peace here with you. Jesus also promises in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus enters our work and comforts us, gives us peace and courage in the midst of our toil, cutting back the thorns that frustrate our labor. Reading the Bible, praying, going to church, the Christian fellowship of the body, all of these are means, the method by which God gives us comfort in the midst of our circumstances. Noah is a lesser Jesus. Jesus is a greater Noah. Jesus, the God-man, comes from the earth, born of Mary. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the Lord of rest. And he takes upon his head, to signify this, the crown of thorns. The result of our curse, the consequence of our moral failure and rebellion, the Lord takes upon himself as the crown of his Messiahship. A twisted, cutting crown of thorns. He puts it on his head. Jesus frees us from the curse of our sin by taking away our sin. We can labor now fruitfully, expectantly, courageously, joyfully, and with peace. Jesus gives us the ministry of reconciliation, as Paul called it, so that we are no longer estranged from one another because of sin, because there is a cure for our sin, a blade thick enough to cut through the thorns that threaten us. We are given, we are forgiven, and so we can forgive. We are loved, and as unlovely as we are, we can love the unlovely. For freedom, we have been set free. We have to understand what this actually means. He doesn't come and load us all up on a boat and lead us up into heaven, right? like Noah right, led the people through the, the flood. It's not an escape plan from this world. Estrangement from our co-laborers of fruitfulness, our fellow man, our spouse, in the very ground. This estrangement is reversed by Jesus because he deals with sin. Because that's what the thorns really are. He takes it upon himself, just like he took the cursed thorns upon his brow. 
Most Christians operate under the belief that the good life, the Christian life, is one freed from the curse of turmoil and toil. But the curse is the fruit of sin, estrangement from our mission and means of fruitfulness. Both subduing and filling require work, even strenuous work. This is what's very confusing, that work is not a result of the fall. We were told to fill it and subdue it. That's work, (laughs) with sin or without it. The sin made it much more difficult, but we have a way of dealing with the thorns. We have a sword in our hands that cuts through the thorns that threaten us. Now, we come to Mark chapter 15, verses 16 through 20. Let's read them again. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Jesus, by wearing the crown of thorns, destroys the power of thorns over us, today, forever. Mark's description suggests a kind of grotesque vaudeville. Jesus, bruised and bleeding, is pushed among the coarse soldiers who gathered in the expectation of a few moments of entertainment. Now, I've been covering this. this. The tension in the city because of the festival is very high. These men hate the Jews. And now what they have in their hands is the king of the Jews. Now, it's common, unfortunately, that soldiers who have to go through great, horrible ordeals finally get some of the enemy soldiers in their hands, and generally they are not polite. Right? Generally, all that frustration and fear and anger and hatred, they finally have somebody to put their hands on. And this is why war atrocities generally occur. Once men in degradation, fighting for their lives, finally get their hands on a real enemy, especially in our day when so much of the fighting is done from a distance, right? Now we use missiles. Now we can shoot somebody with a gun at 100 yards. But God forbid, right, like in Fallujah and Iraq, when those uh, the Iraqis actually came into the hands of the Marines. And it's not just Americans, Right? There, there are stories of even, even righteous people, even people who are on the right side of things in Poland, say, when they finally got their hands on some SS troopers. These soldiers have, of all things, the king of the Jews in their hands. From their point of view, the con- condemned man represented a welcome diversion from the tension in Jerusalem during the festival. It's going to be a fun game here. Let's see what we can pull off. The purple robe and the gilded wreath of leaves were the marks of a Hellenistic vassal king. This is going to be quite funny. So the soldiers threw around Jesus' naked body a faded scarlet cloak or some shabby purple rug. It's unclear. They pressed down on his head a wreath plated from the branches of some available shrub. Because why would you pick a shrub that doesn't have thorns when we're dealing with somebody so disgusting and filthy? The soldiers mixed mockery with physical abuse by striking him on the head with a staff, spitting on him a detail that evokes Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. This pretender to the throne is a figure of fun for them. But how stunned, how unbelievably stunned the disciples would be later when they discovered that the resurrected Jesus, who had taken away our curse by becoming a curse for us, had had a rough crown of thorns, the symbol of our curse, thrust upon his head in his hour of persecution and mockery. 
Because I ask you, how do the gospel writers know anything about this? They've all fled. They've all run away. Unless some of these soldiers were converted and told them later what happened, how would they ever come to know what occurred to Jesus? How shocked they would have been that such a thing had, had occurred to him. The providence of God. Now, we'll go even further up. The providence of God to allow Christ to be clothed in such a manner at such an hour. Is there no comfort for Jesus in this hour? None. I mean, it's bad enough to be arrested. It's bad enough to be falsely accused. It's bad enough to be taken and beaten. But in all of these things, there's no comfort for him? To have him mocked with the very, by the, the very curse that he's taking away for these soldiers later? Right? They're going to become believers that he would be clothed in such a fashion at, at such an hour. When Jesus had been invested with the regalia of a vassal prince, the soldiers pretended to recognize his royal claim. You see in these details ordained by God, the true king of the cosmos treated to this orgy of human wickedness in order to save his persecutors from wickedness. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the good news. How could those soldiers have known that such mocking symbols were the symbols of Christ's ministry on their behalf? In the midst of the storm, right? In the midst of this, this vaudeville play, how could they have any idea that what they were doing was the thing that was going to save them? They were, in jest, investing Jesus with the symbols of his humiliation, the requirement of his exaltation. The humiliation and exaltation that would open a door to the throne of grace for these very wretches. The word of God contains within itself details of God's glorious tale of humility and love. His pursuit of mankind from Adam and Eve's fall all the way to the Roman praetorium. He would chase man as far as he needed to go. Here in Jerusalem, where Gentiles humiliate the Messiah, thereby bringing about his exaltation, fulfilling through their actions and symbols God's redemptive plan. They had no idea the story they were involved in, what they were fulfilling, what it meant for themselves or for the whole world. Now, this we can see. Right? We, we can lift up our Bibles. We turn to Mark 15. We read this passage, and, and then we, you know, even after time, we're like, oh, this is really weird, these details. Let's look into the details. Whoa, there's a lot going on here with these thorns. This is amazing. You can see it. You can go back and you can see what was said about Noah. You can go back and you can see what was written in Isaiah. These things we can see, but there is a great deal that we cannot see. Now, we're going to go back to what was read for us today, Romans chapter 8, verses 23 through 30. Let's read this. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now we were saved. We know it. And we were saved with this hope that we would stand in the flesh and see Jesus in the flesh and that all of the wickedness, all of the thorns, all of the failure, all of the horrible things that go on in this world would be reconciled in him. That's the hope that we were saved with. 
But who can see it? Who can see it? Can you see your loved one who died? Can you see people jumping up out of their wheelchairs and dancing around as if right, the wicked and terrible things that happened them had never happened? I can't see it. There is a great deal we cannot see. How many people are going to die of a virus? How many people are going to die of the flu? How many people are going to die in car wrecks? Is my cousin who had a brain tumor, who at the end of his life was eating like he was a little baby. I can't see him as a man playing baseball with his son. I read history. I, I, I know about the Holocaust. I can't see the point. There is a great deal we cannot see. And this is why we groan inwardly. I'm not talking about the unsaved who groan inwardly because they're still under the curse, they're still under the fall. I'm talking about the fact that those who were called were justified, and we are sitting here justified. We have the Spirit who teaches us to pray what we, because we don't know what to pray for. Sitting here, we're still groaning. And we wonder, when? When is the end? There is so much that I can't see. How am I going to see it? We're standing on the edge of the Red Sea. We're looking out across the waves, and we can't see a way through. But what we can see is the Savior of the world on his knees, spit running down his face, a crown of thorns jammed into his forehead. And we know what that meant. And we know that they led him out to be crucified. And we know that they crucified him. We can see that. And in the circumstances of our lives, where there is so much that we cannot see, what we have to remember is what we can see. And what we can see is an empty cross. What we can see is an empty tomb. What we can see is is that Jesus is no longer here. We can't see him because he has gone on ahead to fulfill all the things that we have promised, and we can see that. Why would we look away from him? Why would we look for anything else? Why are we so focused on our circumstances? We can't see how any of that is going to work itself out. But what we can see is the Lord Jesus Christ on his knees with a crown of thorns. So when you're sitting there at work and you think, right, how am I going to talk to this coworker who's a total nightmare? How am I going to talk to my husband who keeps losing his temper? How am I going to apologize to my five-year-old? Right? You turn on CNN. Well, God forbid. You turn on Fox News and you think, how, what is, I can't see how this is possibly going to work out. Right? We're so busy looking at the things that we cannot see that we have forgotten what we can see. And what we all need to do is, is go back and look at what we can see. We can see him. We can see what he already accomplished. We can go back to the very beginning of, of the word and, and see how the Lord God filled all of these symbols in Jesus' life with all of this meaning, all this rich meaning and hope. And we, with assurance, can look at that and say, look, look at what he did. And then we focus on that. We focus on what we can see and the things that we can't see. Don't distract us. They don't fill us with fear. Because the longer you look at them, Right? The longer you look at the things you can't see, the more frustrated you will be, the more hopeless you will be, the more broken down you will be. But as soon as you get your eyes off of those and get them on what you can see, which is Jesus Christ with the crown of thorns, once you look at that and keep your eyes focused on that and all the things that he has done, you aren't going to worry so much about the things that he yet hasn't. That's our hope. 
That's our, that's our calling. We, this is why we go into the world and tell, get your eyes off the things you can't see. Get your eyes on the things you can. Little kid, you're right, to your children. This is your ministry to them. Kids, get your eyes off of one another. Get your eyes off the things you can't see. Get your eyes on the thing you can see, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And amen. Father, we thank you for this picture of your son. We thank you for his humiliation. Lord God, because it is what brought his exaltation. We thank you that he did not, that, that he is born of the dust like we are, that he approached us, that he came into the story of, redempt, of redemption and gives us a picture to, to focus on, a picture to see. We know that we are yours. We know that we are called and we know that we are justified. We know that we're being sanctified. But Lord God, we yearn to be glorified. We yearn. We bemoan in our hearts to see the revelation of the sons of God in all their glory. It's difficult, Lord God, to see it, but we know that we can see Jesus. And I pray for all of us that we would get our eyes on him and get our eyes on what we can see and that it would fill us with hope and strength and courage. And amen.